0: Precipitation chance of precipitation is about 60%. Coming up next is Sabrina Artel with Trailer Talk. Stay tuned. Hear how its riverfront makes Paris so romantic. The Seine is like a, a stage set for all these extraordinary monuments on its banks. Why the Belgians and the Dutch enjoy being neighbors.
1: We love the Belgian sense of humor, which is kind of surreal.
0: And how they do things in today's Germany. It can be easy, you know, to just let your kid go play. That's the way we do it. On the next Travel with Rick Steves.
2: Tuesday afternoon at 2.00.
1: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. We hold these truths
0: to be self-evident, that all are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need a nation to join heart and hand. So if you neglected Civil rights are not protected Stop, question, blame, arrest it Freedom and equality. I'm just trying to be free, they want to bottle me. We're all victims to the immigration policy. We need change, you can save the apology. We need help, in Arizona calls. Things won't improve with the Arizona law. Give us the strength to battle through it all. Cause when we're strong, that's when paranoia falls. Rich get rich, the poor get poor, and greed for the money is the root of it all. At the same time, they control us with fear, it seems that nobody cares. Yo, the rich get rich and the poor get poor. The greed for the money is the root of it all. At the same time, they control us with fear, but it seems that nobody cares. Yeah.
1: As we face a national crisis with this new administration, I wanted to share what House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi said on February 2nd. She called President Donald Trump's chief strategist a white supremacist, saying that he had no business serving on the National Security Council. Steve Bannon, the former head of Breitbart News, allowed that website to become a platform for white nationalists. Pelosi continues, what's making America less safe is to have a white supremacist named to the National Security Council as a permanent member. The White House has not responded to a request for comment. As people gather in resistance around the country, as protests are continuing, I wanted to share this piece from a few years ago. As most people know, February has been designated Black History Month. But in the United States, of course, black history is American history. This week I share some conversations about this history. Please join me at the Media Reform Conference in Memphis, Tennessee from 2007. This is Sabrina Artel, and I am at the Media Reform Conference in Memphis. This is the first day of the conference and uh, Danny Glover was just speaking and introduced Bill Moyers. Okay. Mr. Danny Glover, I'm Sabrina Artel. It's uh, a pleasure are you doing? meeting good, you. Good Wonderful. Pleasure. Thank you for taking your time to speak with me. I'm wondering if we could talk about since we're here in Memphis on the birthday weekend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about the part of his legacy that you're carrying with you right now in connection with media reform and the message you want to get out.
2: I mean, there's so much of, of King's legacy that we carry with us. And, and, and the most incredible thing that we have is we have his words. His words is, resonates almost 40 years after his death here in Memphis. And, and King's strove always and talked about the ideas around justice. Talk about the ideas about the justice and our, our ability to imagine. So what he often did was to instill in us the, the idea that we can imagine justice and work toward justice. And, and justice means an informed population and an informed, and, and an informed electorate and people who, t- who, took, who knew that this was important and vital to making democracy works. The whole idea of access to the media, the whole idea of, of, of democratizing the, uh, the media is exactly that. Is exactly for that reason to pr- promote the, to, to create the, the, the groundwork for real democracy, for real democracy and real imagination. Once you begin to control people's imagination, you control what they think, you control how they see themselves, and what we have now is, is a distorted kind of a distorted process in, in which, in which we, in some sense, in some ways, we, we, we. We've lost that 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 Mm -hmm. that sense of who we can be, who we can be, and what we can be, in the in the in the process of moving toward justice.
1: And at what point for you did you realize you needed to speak out as an artist and to really take the stands you have been taking for social justice?
2: How you doing? But I tell you, I've been fortunate, and I've been fortunate from from the very very, you know the very outset of my of my life, because I'm a child of the civil rights movement. So I'm just inspired by the, the work that King did, the work that King and many others did, many other Fannie Lou Hamer, many men and women did. I'm inspired by that. And I happen to be a part, as a young, as a young student, a part of a, a, an activism that happened on campuses as well around this country. So I've been fortunate. So it's always been a part. The reason I got into theater was the fact that I thought theater could be an informative way of, 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 of politicizing people. Simple, simple as that. Of democratizing the whole idea of, of providing information. Theater could be that, that, that way of doing that. So uh, as, much as, as, as much as I've been, I've, been trying, I've always tried to shift my career or to navigate through my care, career with that in mind. You know, and and that is that has kept me buoyant. It's kept me excited about what I do, and excited about the whole crowd of acting and the whole work as as a cultural, as I, I refer to myself as a cultural worker.
1: And Mr. Danny Glover, what's the number one priority right now that you want to share with us in terms of what we can be doing?
2: Well, I, I think the work that we're doing, the work that we have to do, is on is is, is multi. On multi levels, strategizing on multi levels, and try- figuring out how can we now reclaim what is our, our rightfully ours. That this is, this is a process of reclamation. This is a process of reclaiming what's important and what's vital to making this work. If we want to have and talk about a real, a real, a real democracy, if we want to talk about what real patriotism means in terms of dissent and everything else, then we better start marching right now, and we better start finding imaginative ways in which we can reclaim it. Supporting those efforts of young people, supporting those efforts of people who are, who are, who are our alternatives.
1: Thank you very much, we Danny Glover.
2: Alternatives. We provide alternatives. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Good time tonight. It's George the army Bailey in the house tonight. We love you, judge. This is from our friend Kate and Yolanda from free press. We love you. A change don't come. Now we want to go to church tonight. Is that all right?
1: I'm Sabrina Artel, and I want to thank you, Diami Bailey, for joining me. You are the founder of the National Civil Rights Museum here in Memphis, located at the Lorraine Motel, which is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Could you share with us how you had this idea to locate the museum here and what the process has been? And might I add that I was at the museum yesterday It was my first visit there and it was incredibly moving to go there and a really extensive exhibit about the civil rights movement and incredible documentation and uh, so many things were there.
3: Well, Sabrina, welcome to Memphis and I'm honored that this wonderful conference is here. It's the greatest thing that's happened to this city in the last 30 years. I was born here I went down to Southern University in Baton Rouge in the early 60s and I got caught up in the civil rights movement, the sit-in movement, I was expelled from college there. I got to know some of the organizers in SNCC and CORE, worked with them, moved up to Massachusetts to finish school. But after that I sort of was committed to civil rights and would come back and go down to places like Mississippi and Alabama working with organizers. After law school, I worked a year in New York out of the offices of the American Civil Liberties Union, the national headquarters, but working with a separate group organizing law students to do civil rights work in the South. I did that a year, moved to California, was elected to the city council in Berkeley in '71, fought hard for the rights of blacks, got some affirmative action and other things done, and I was ousted in a special election in Berkeley in '73. So I came back to Memphis, my home to practice law in 74. And when I came back, it was then six years after Dr. King was killed here in Memphis. And there's a certain irony about the Lorraine Motel because it was owned by a black man whose name was Walter L. Bailey, and my father's name was Walter L. Bailey. So when I grew up here, people often thought that my family owned the Lorraine Motel. So I've always had this sort of identification with the motel. And so after I'd come back to practice law, a year or two later, the Lorraine was a rundown, decaying old motel with prostitutes up and down the street in front of it. And I saw Mr. Bailey coming out of a laundromat one day, and I asked him what was happening. And I started working with him to try to help him organize a project to rehabilitate it.
1: And Diami Bailey, what year was this?
3: This was in uh, let's see, we we did our drive in '82, so this would have been '79, around 1979. And so, Mr. Bailey. His wife had a stroke on the night of the assassination, and she died two days later. And she had helped him to run the motel, so he had trouble trying to keep all of the business straight. And they foreclosed on him. We couldn't. He couldn't find contributors to help him to sp- turn it into a motel. He kept the room that Dr. King came out of as sort of a shrine, and that was it. And the rest of the motel actually was run down, and as I said, prostitutes, some mostly. And so when the mortgage holder was going to foreclose on Bailey in 1982 because he couldn't keep up the mortgage payments. I went with him one day out to pay the mortgage to a man named Harry Sauer, and he, he took his money in a brown paper sack out to pay him. So I, I could see there that keeping up with the accounts and all that was not going to work with him, but that wasn't my job. So they foreclosed on him, and they put the Lorraine on the auction block in December of 1982. Well, when they first initiated the foreclosure, which was April of that year, a group of us, small group, organized a campaign to save the Lorraine.
1: And prior to yourself, Diami Bailey, and the group of you saving the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated, were people making pilgrimages there? Was, was it this place that, that held meaning for people, or has that come now? because oh,
3: absolutely not. That was what encouraged me. Was it even in that awful shape that it was in? People were continuing to come from all over the world to the Lorraine Motel. I went there, took a met a couple of gentlemen from uh East Germany, priest. Uh and this must have been around nineteen eighty. And I stood out on this underneath the balcony where Dr. King was shot with these two East German priests, and they looked up at the balcony and they said to me, This is a holy place. And when they said that here were people from East Germany that recognized that then that drove home to me that this was a site that could never die and no matter how bad the surroundings were and so I knew whether it was through what uh, I did or what somebody else did that this site would ultimately come to life and carry forth the spirit not just of a dead man king but the spirit of a movement and if you will notice throughout the museum, that I was committed not to creating a museum to honor King, but rather to create a museum to carry forth the message of the movement. And so that's why the many exhibits in the museum, there are 13 major exhibits. You see, I came to this as a student of the movement. I came out of the civil rights movement. And so I knew that if we could have the story told there with the vibrancy that I've experienced running from tear gas in downtown Baton Rouge, and when I experienced the marches in Yazoo, Mississippi and other places, and saw what these volunteers were going through in other places, if we could keep that sense of commitment and sacrifice and danger alive, and that's what I told my designers. That's why I asked them to burn the bus that's in the museum and to make it look like the bus that was burned in Anniston, Alabama. And I asked uh, Hank Thomas, who at the time that we burned the bus, owned four McDonald's franchises in Atlanta. At the time of the burning of the bus, he was a student on the bus. And, uh, And so we had him there in Nashville when we burned that bus, and I stood out in the field with him as we watched it and he talked about the actual experience of being on the bus that was burned there in Aniston. Now, I have not been involved in the management of the museum because I was ousted as the president after the museum opened because what had happened was that after the nine years, Uh, Initially, uh, I controlled the board because no one came to board meetings except two or three loyal people. And so the money came from the state and the local governments to build the museum, $10 million. First from Nashville after the local government turned us down and then from the city and county. And I worked with those officials to get the funding, but I had to have local people on the board. And I put some people on there, some black preachers and civil rights folks. Well, then when they, they didn't come to the meetings until we got the money and they saw that it was going to succeed, they come to the meetings and they want bylaws and they want reports and they want to be involved in what we do. By this time, I've hired designers, I've got an architect, two architects in Nashville, I've got the state working with me. So I had to make them mad at me to keep them from voting in the board meetings, and they'd break up. Well, by the time the museum opened, they had gotten enough votes, and I'd brought a rich white guy who was the head of the AutoZone Corporation here at the time, and I needed money to put a sculpture in the lobby. And so he came in. Well, he saw what was going on with the blacks bickering with me, and then by the... So he put his votes along with theirs, and they voted me out, and they voted Ben Hooks in as the president of the board, who had been, uh, hadn't been had been in a board meeting in 10 years. but. He now is the president of the board and as a figurehead. The executive committee of the the museum is actually chaired and run by this conservative white Republican, Pitt Hyde. uh, How did that happen? Because blacks would rather have the ones remaining on the board to have allied with him and let him control it than to see another black person control it because they didn't control it. Now, how do you explain that phenomena? It's gone on throughout history, and we have to understand that. Du Bois experienced that with the NAACP. And so that's just the progress because white money people come along and if they see blacks that they can buy off. And I don't mean under the table, I'm talking about with grants on top of the table. They gave Hooks a $25,000 award. They gave one of the other people a $25,000 award. All public in a big banquet. And so, you, you know, the money comes in and controls it and that's what the museum is now controlled by is the corporations. Federal Express, uh, International Paper, uh, AutoZone Corporation. AutoZone's putting on a big Martin Luther King event on Monday to honor King at uh, the FedEx Forum. Um, And that corporation was sued three or four years ago by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for discrimination against blacks. In fact, I think the lawsuit's still going on, that in a period of two or three years that they hired and promoted 63 managers, none were black and the person who ran the corporation at the time is the man who now chairs the executive committee of the Civil Rights Museum.
1: Deami Bailey, as the founder of the National Civil Rights Museum here in Memphis, Tennessee, where are you at right now then with what you're involved with? And as you've stated, you've grown up with the Civil Rights Movement, so where has it brought you today in 2007?
3: Well, today I'm a judge. I'm a state trial court judge and I handle civil cases about anything involving money, divorces, medical malpractice and the like. I've been a judge now. I'm elected every eight years and uh, I just got re-elected to an eight year term. I'm also now one of three people to be nominated uh, to be for the governor to pick to serve on the Tennessee Supreme Court, one of the three of us. And so I'm a nominee to the state Supreme Court. i had been encouraged by the soul black of the five members who retired that he asked me and urged me to run and that's really why I did it but so I'm a, a nominee for the state Supreme Court i um, I'm regularly working as a judge and I'm just getting ready to publish a book on my experiences as a civil rights activist it's called uh, the education of a radical memoirs of a civil rights activist and I just got uh, I asked Nikki Giovanni to read it and and do a preface for me and she wrote me back yesterday uh, with a preface that is just beautiful. And in it she says that the education of a radical by Diami Bailey gives a fresh insight into the young men of the 60s. We all know their actions but now we have a voice to enlighten those actions, a strong, uncompromising voice that yet dreams of a better America. Judge Bailey has experienced the ugliness of both racism and fear, yet he has not stepped back. What a wonderful life to share." And she goes on with another paragraph about the book. So this will be my preface in the book. So I'm working on that project to publish that. Actually, I want it to be a trilogy. Um, The first one will deal, as I said, with my. I was kicked out of college at Southern University in Baton Rouge as a civil rights protester in 1962 and went and finished school in Massachusetts. That's when I met Danny Schechter, who I spoke to earlier. Danny's an old friend of mine from the 60s. And um, then once I left, finished college there and finished law school at Yale, spent a year in Manhattan, I went to California. And I got into politics in Berkeley after practicing law a couple of years. I was elected to city council. And I pushed for black rights, and I was ousted from the city council in a recall election. I was recalled from the city only person ever recalled in the history of Berkeley. They said that I was introducing race into the politics of the city, and that I was causing disturbances and the council couldn't function, and the city would, things would break down in disarray. That was a prelude to my work as chairman of the board of the Civil Rights Museum, by the way.
1: (laughs) And then you just decided to become a judge, just make life easy. So, in this position now, as a judge, are you finding, I, I'm curious about that because there are a lot of also restrictions as a judge.
3: Well, I don't fit the mold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do a little acting, too, as a hobby. I was in the People versus Larry Flint, and I uh, organized a premiere of the film in Memphis. And I got uh, criticized by our judicial administrators for doing that. So, you know, you do occasionally run into some, some criticism, but overall, I'm very astute about, at least I try to be, following the rules. They don't keep me from voicing my opinion and being my own man. And I'm, I have strong support with the voters I'm voted in. Now in this deal with the Supreme Court, that's appointed by the governor, so that's become very political and complicated. But as to my regular job, the voters vote for me, and they, they like me in Memphis because they've known me a number of years they know what I stand for and they vote me back in when I run for office
1: is there an issue is there something that is the most important thing for you to voice right now
3: yes yes, absolutely black people have lost our way Uh, we've got children raising children who don't have values the parents themselves and I don't say that in in a judgmental way I say that unfortunately in an analytical way that we've got all of this crime, these black kids are gang-banging and busting each other in the head with these pistols, killing people over nothing. Uh, they're dropping out of school. They don't put value on being competitive. You can't win this fight for liberation against the predominant whites that have control the wealth and the power of this nation if you don't refine and, and make the most of your very natural resources and strengths, that's what the movement, the Civil Rights Movement, was about. And we've lost that, that, that drive and that commitment, and that dedication. And I say that about black people because I think that black people represent the heart and soul of America. Black people in the 60s were the people who made America stand up to its own ideals, and it made America redefine itself in the, in the eyes of the world. And it still has that very basic power to help redefine this nation. If black people were fighting, we helped to give rise to the fight that killed the Vietnam War. And so, just as we played that pivotal role in challenging the spirit of this nation, we've got to heal the disease and the sores within our own community and strengthen ourselves again. And I believe in the cyclical process and I believe that it will happen again so that we can again take our places on the national and international stage to make this country be decent. And we're best suited to do it because we've seen the country at its worst. We've lived the country at its worst.
1: Thank you so much, Judge Diami Bailey, for speaking with me. You're the founder of the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you so much for sharing. This conversation with me. Is there anything else you would like to have? No, add?
3: you do a wonderful interview and I appreciate talking with you. Thank you. Rich and the
1: poor get poor. The grief for the money is the root of it
0: all. At the same time they control us with fear, but it seems that nobody cares. Yeah.
1: From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power, Sweet Honey in the Rock, Are We a Nation? Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell with assistant producer, Babe Howard. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.
3: I have no accurate knowledge of my age or date of birth. Slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of
2: theirs. The nearest estimate I came to is uh, around February 14th. Celebrate Frederick Douglass' birthday by spending an hour with him on Valentine's Day. Oliver King performs excerpts from Frederick Douglass' autobiography. You've got two chances to hear it, 9 in the morning or 7 in the evening. Friday, Valentine's Day, Frederick Douglass's birthday. Black History Month, or African American History Month, was created in order to celebrate contributions made here by African Americans to American society. So we have to give our respect and celebrate during the month of February. Black History Month on the Music Emporium with Kusar
3: Grace. Tuesdays at 7 all month long. Brothers
0: and sisters out on the street, you've got to get down with your history. W.J.F.